just to say, I'm going to give you an overview of my own experience as a failed politician uh, <laughs> who lasted for about two years, uh, also being an active clinician within the service. And it's always, being an academic too, worthwhile certainly reading this report and in many ways having it at a perfect timing because any post-mortem of anything you've done in the past I'm sure would be of benefit not just for the political leadership but for many, many of those or of us who work within the health service. To start off with, I think if you really want to send the context, I would like to say a few things about the reforms of 10 years ago, the NHS plan being the start of the reforms. I think it's important to acknowledge and at least recognize the fact that these reforms at the time they were done were the right things to do. And there's been a lot of talk here about, and I think in many, you know, you can read between the lines the negative tinge to some of them. But Chris, you were very much part of the leadership at the time. You know, the provider reforms, you know, the foundation trust have been a good story. There's no question about that. The, we talked about the commissioner reforms, uh, and I think Stephen touched on that extremely well. Uh, you know, in many ways, certainly in my line of activities, competition, as Stephen said, is a very important part. The question is, I don't compete with four-hour weights. I compete on outputs, on clinical outcomes. If I'm really going to go as a patient to seek treatment, I would like to see what the outcomes and the experience is. And I, in many ways, that is where competition should focus on and choice should come in. And I think it's plenty of evidence in the international literature, also in the UK, that competition and choice works. But how do you make it work? Transactional reform, again, you know, giving the CEO of a hospital a brown envelope in April and say, this is what you have, do your best, wasn't the way of running a system. So whichever way you look at it, at that time, we had an NHS, which is about 50 years old, which actually wasn't a system. It was a complete basket case. And someone had to have the leadership of actually creating a system. But what went wrong, I think at the time, was the complete disregard to the business units who were delivering the care, that patient-focused care. And that, in many ways, was really, despite those three reports, it was quite clear. I didn't have to go to America to understand what is wrong with the system. You just had to talk to the patients, talk to the clinicians, and talk to the leaders, talk to the Royal Colleges, talk to the different organizations and stakeholders. And the message was very clear. The system might be reformed, but there is a serious issue when it comes to service reform. System reform is not necessarily symbiotic with service reform. And I think that's the opportunity which was missed at the time. And it took more than eight years or so to start refocusing of what the NHS should be all about. And making quality the organizing principle of the NHS was my motto at the time, bringing in the quality continuum. What engages clinicians is effectiveness. What engages clinicians is the metrics, the transparencies, the measurements. Really, you know, using Stevens, the, the most competitive thing. Have you ever come across a doctor or a nurse 
who's ever told you, go up the hospital up the road, they do it better than me. Never, <laughs> never. Even they're not able to do it. That is another challenge, but I'll come back to that. So is the clinical system, is the business unit, is the pathway design there were the major challenges back in 1998, and I think in many ways we've sort of lost the focus again in 2010. And I think with that, there's no question, comes the social mobilization. You know, where is the energy? Where is the imagination? Where was the engagement? Where was the participation? You know, the most irritating thing, although I had a huge admiration for Tony Blair as a leader, standing up there saying that we've achieved this target, that target, that target. And that's the sad thing, if I could just be critical from a political perspective. Politicians have become technocrats. Politicians have become... Someone told me in the department when, when I started to use the civil service jargon, once you do that as a politician, you should leave because you know too much about the subject matter. And that is... And Obama did exactly the same mistake. If you really listen to his speeches, this is the most gifted orator was standing up there and talking about the technical aspects of it rather than mobilizing the clinicians out there who are going to deliver this. So which brings me back to the business units and we're going to hear a lot from Salford and, uh, and there is more than Salford within the NHS uh, and, and that is where is the direction? Where is the leadership? Where is the coordination? Uh, where is the motivation? What's the environment in which you're working in? Capability within that organization. These are the things that we missed. And sadly, none of these are sexy enough in Whitehall to make that happen. And how do you come back to the business units and really, really drive that? When you talk about leadership, there's plenty of leadership, and not just in this room, who are the enthusiasts who are here, who really want to learn what's happened before to improve the future. The problem in leadership within the NHS is not promoted. You know, in any, the le leadership genes are there, and the balance between the promoters and suppressors needs to be rebalanced. And that is a major challenge. Who are the role models in the organization that I work in? Where are the skills for change? You know, I was, I qualified from a medical school, not on this island. Uh, uh, but I am and I do have a significantly s senior role in a medical school here. We don't produce the new generation of clinicians, whether they're doctors and nurses, who do actually have the skills for change. We take the most creative group of people into our medical school. At the end of that pipeline, they are robots. Uh, and they're, in many ways, we're doing something to these people in which that creativity is not really translating or promoting their leadership skills. The understanding of the system, the conviction that is required, and that, I'm sure David will tell us, is what he has achieved to do in the Royal Salford. And what are the reinforcement mechanisms in really promoting and really encouraging uh, that leadership at a local level? The other issue you wanted me to talk about is innovation. Now, in 1998, when I went to the... 97, when I... Was it 2007 when I went to the Department of Health? And I'm, I'm really losing it here. Uh, the word innovation wasn't in the taxonomy of the DH. There was some lady who was recently appointed 
her name was Sally Davis at the time, and she was completely isolated. There was a ring fence budget given to her, and she had to manage these noisy people called academics. And brave lady who actually transformed the whole funding of research and created the National Institute of Health Research. But as far as the DH, as far as the rest of the DH, that was innovation, which was in many ways a complete lack of understanding that she was actually funding research. She was there funding new scientific discovery. She was out there trying to fund and successfully did 10 years down the line in translating new discovery into evidence. But the challenge remained, despite Alan Milburn's probably the most creative arms length body created at the time, which has been criticized this morning by many, many doctors, was the National Institute of Clinical and Health Excellence. And it again reinforces the mechanism. Having an organization like that out there, high up, will stimulate the clinical community in translating that evidence which was coming out of NIHR into clinical practice. That didn't happen. Sadly, it happened in the wrong places, which was technology assessment and all the rows in relation to NICE. So innovation was, how do we translate that hugely expensive evidence that we have into clinical practice? And that remains a challenge. May I just say, that remains a challenge in all healthcare systems across the globe. In health, for all sorts of reasons, the uptake of innovation, whatever it happens to be, may I just say, including the exemplars from India, which could be a simple process innovation, is to create a health or economic value. We are not very good in doing that, and we know that. There are some system elements in that, but there's also some business units element in that, and we need to work on that, and we need to find, again, like leadership, what are the promoters in which we will encourage innovation. And I think in many ways, at a time of in the you know, economic climate we're living in, innovation is the only solution we have to survive in this new era in which we're not going to see the growth that we've seen before. So I think innovation in that document, which clearly makes the case that hasn't really helped the NHS and its reforms, is very important. So how do you make that happen? It's actually probably in itself is a major scientific discovery that needs to happen here. I think we tried to address this. I think Greg Parson is here. Where he designed a, a, an index called the Global Diffusion of Healthcare Innovation. And he looked at the number of the enablers, uh, things like vision and strategy, and we've had a lot of visions and strategies in this place. We looked at the incentives and rewards. I think we've worked reasonably well with some of the incentives, but I think there's significantly more work that needs to be done. I mean, to be fair to Andrew Lansley, one of the things he was pushing for was the alignment of incentives, funding, the transparency in evidence, again, using the competitive nature of clinicians uh, in driving uh, the uptake of innovations. But I think the bit that we don't do well uh, and we've surveyed eight different countries to look at this, and certainly UK wasn't on the top list. I think it was certainly one below the bottom. The biggest challenge we've had is what Greg described as the cultural dynamics. I think Stephen Dorrell was there at the panel discussion, 
when this was presented in December of last year, are we harnessing the effort, uh, efforts of patients as co-producer of care? Are we addressing the concerns of the healthcare professionals when it comes to outcomes and sustainability? Are we freeing up time for people to be creative and translating that? So there's a lot to learn as well in this new world and how to drive uh, innovation. So to summarize what we you know, I, I wouldn't be as negative as if you read between the lines in that report. I think what happened about 2000, 2001 and the NHS plan, you have to remember, was the first attempt. And uh, you have to acknowledge Ken Clark's efforts here as well, a few years before, in getting a system in the NHS. And I think it was the right thing to do in the right time. But I think we missed many, many other opportunities and I could, you know, the clear message here is another system reform is not going to address those. There are completely different sets of challenges who, that need different sets of solutions. So thanks again for having me.